Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. We went to bed, and for no reason that I'm aware of, I woke up at 4 a.m., and I know it was 4 a.m. because we had these kind of big French doors, all glass, because we just moved in. We didn't have time to put up curtains or anything. And the sky was this, like, eerily beautiful orange. That's why I know it was 4, because I was like, is it dawn? Like, looked at my clock. But no, there'd actually been a massive gas line explosion up the hill. So the sky was orange. And thank God, because that's how I could see this like tidal wave of mud, just like 30 feet high. We actually had this cool old Balinese daybed thing that was at the far end of the yard. And it was like 30 feet up in the air, just careening towards us. So I screamed a napper like go get ever because his bedroom was on the second floor and he took off running and by the time I was trying to follow him the mud glass boulders furniture was up to my waist so I couldn't follow him and I had to run the other way which was back to my bathroom where there was a window and I don't know if you ever saw that Naomi Watts tsunami movie but it was like that Hello, friends, and welcome back to The Light Watkins Show, where I interview ordinary folks just like you and me who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith in the direction of their path, their purpose, or their mission. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact the lives of many others who've either heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who've directly benefited from their work. Today, I'm speaking with author and trauma expert Mary Firestone. So I recently posted something on social media about fear, and it was a quote from Jim Morrison. It said, expose yourself to your deepest fear, and after that, fear has no power. You are free. Well, Mary's backstory is interesting because she ended up being exposed to her biggest fear rather unintentionally, but she experienced the same effect. She was essentially free, meaning she got clear on her purpose She was crystal clear about what was truly important in her life and on how everything that she experienced up until that point was preparing her for her biggest obstacle. So long story short, one fateful night in January of 2018, Mary, who was pregnant at the time, was spontaneously awakened out of a deep sleep around four o'clock in the morning. And she walks over to her bedroom window and what she saw frightened the hell out of her. There was a mudslide rapidly approaching her home. And within seconds, her entire house had been buried under 
that mudslide. And she found herself trapped in her bathroom alone, wearing just pajamas. She was freezing. She was sitting on the countertop in the pitch black and there was mud and sewage literally inches below her. Meanwhile, she had no idea where her husband was. She didn't know where her son was. She didn't know if they even survived. And five hours of agony later, she was thankfully rescued. And fortunately, her little boy and her husband had been rescued as well. So it turns out that night, about 200 million gallons of rainfall had fallen within 15 minutes in her area. Her house was like near a mountain. And that mountain gave away and caused a mudslide that killed 23 people and injured 150 people. And so after that near-death experience, Mary realized that all of the previous study that she had done in psychology and the healing work that she had been facilitating for others had been preparing her not just to survive that mudslide, but to help other people who were navigating severe trauma. So she ended up writing a book sharing how she transformed her personal experience of darkness into light in an effort to encourage others to break free from their trauma and to give tools and practical resources for regular people to emerge from their trauma stronger and more able than they were before. I read her book. It's called Trusting the Dawn, and I found it to be very practical, very informative. She shares her personal experience with healing modalities that we've heard of, such as yoga and maybe aromatherapy. But then there's others that she's also done that she talks about, which is modalities such as shaking, EMDR, cranial sacral therapy, ketamine, MDMA, and more. And Mary is also co-founder of an organization called Firestone Sisters, which provides women with healing and growth opportunities using retreats and workshops. And during the interview, we talk a lot about why you should eliminate the word try from your vocabulary, especially when you're navigating trauma, and how to practice positive self-talk. We talked about the power of daily meditation. Turns out Mary learned to meditate with one of my Vedic meditation colleagues. We talked about why referring to yourself in third person can be helpful for navigating trauma, and a new way to think about the concept of luck and much more. So if you're going through trauma right now, or if you know someone who is, or if you have in the past, you're going to find this conversation absolutely insightful and helpful. So settle in, get ready to meet another ordinary person just like you and me who is using her life experience in an extraordinary way. And I want to introduce you to Miss Mary Firestone. Mary Firestone, (laughs) welcome to my podcast. I've heard a lot of good things about you. You and I share an agent. You and I share a book editor. You and I share a publisher. So we've got a lot of cross connection here. And I'm excited to have you on the podcast and share your story with my audience. Thank you, Light Watkins, for having me on the show. (laughs) All right. So I always like to start these conversations talking about childhood. So you grew up in Washington, D.C.? Was it in the actual city or was it in the Maryland or Virginia area? In in the actual city. um, Which part? It's called Calorama. And it's kind of near like the mosque, near DuPont Circle. Yeah, it's where like a lot of the embassy residences are. And actually, former President Barack Obama now lives around the corner. So now you can't drive anywhere. Oh, wow, wow, wow. 
I love yeah. that. I know. It's good. Yeah. Neighbor. I actually went to Howard, so I'm familiar with some cool. parts of DC. <laughs> you haven't been back in a while though. But anyway, thinking cool. back to little Mary, whatever yeah. they called you back when you were a kid, did you have any favorite toys or activities that you recall fondly? Yeah, I loved playing dress up and I would go into my mom's clothes and her makeup and like try on everything and put on makeup. And then we had like a little microphone in our basement, which actually I'm like, I can't believe our parents put the playroom in the basement. It's like kind of a creepy silence of the lambs looking basement, but maybe they did that on purpose, right? Like everyone down, especially little Mary on her microphone, like singing and We had like a little piano and I would play and sing. And so I loved performing, I guess. Was it just you and Lucy or did you guys have other siblings? Just the two of us. She's two years younger. And Uh then now I actually, I have a half brother named Felix, who's 11, who's an amazing kid. And he and my son are only two years apart in age and so it's kind of a weird, like, huh, like uncle, brother, <laughs> but they're cute. And he's a great, he speaks four languages, actually. He's very impressive. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, the happinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, You'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. So talk about the vibe in your house. What were some of the lessons? What was the ideology or the philosophy as you all were growing up? And just to give you an example, when I was growing up, my dad used to always say, you have to own your own business. You have to work hard, obviously, blah, blah, blah. What was what was happening in your household? So, yes, you're right. I you know come from a very well-off family. And in terms of money, that seemed, I didn't, you know, think about that. We had a nice house. I went to private school, had lots of toys. And while my parents are incredibly loving and I have great relationships with them now, I would say like growing up. And I don't know, again, if it's like a product of how they grew up, 
You know, my dad grew up in the Northeast and went off to boarding school and he was 13 or 14 and didn't have modeled for him a lot of like, like what a family looked like. His mother died actually at birth. So it was kind of like a chilly growing up for him. And my mom is like a steel magnolia Southern Belle from Charleston, South Carolina. and you know, then there we were in DC. And I don't know if it was ever said to me, but it was, well, actually it was, you need to look a certain way. You need to not say certain things. You behave a certain way, do well in school, do well in all the the things. So, and I love my dad, but it's still like, oh, the book. Okay, great. Okay. That's great about your book, but like how much are you going to make? Then what's the business plan from there? And what's the, you know, so there was a lot of, pressure. And I went to National Cathedral School for Girls, NCS, which actually Mean Girls was based on. So there was (laughs) a lot of competition, a lot of eating disorders. I did not have one, but a lot of external pressure and a lot of Mm -hmm. academic pressure. So it was not the warmest environment, but I did have my sister and we we had a lot of fun playing and we always had each other and a lot of nannies and helpers in the house, which I didn't really love. So we had a lot, but then, you know, it's kind of like you realize it's, uh, it's so trite, but you can have a lot and still want that more intimate connection, which I try to create with my kids now. Were you a natural in, in the sense of uh, you're very accomplished now? you know, and your fancy degrees and you've done some amazing things. You've written a book. Was that something that you always saw for yourself? Like when you were younger and you thought of success in relationship to what your parents were experiencing, did you fit into that model or because I like singing and being on the microphone, I'm just going to go and be creative. Well, it's so funny. I actually just, I've been reading Dr. Shafali's book, A Radical Awakening right now. And it's all about how especially as women, we never feel like we're enough. And so to hear you just say, you've got all the, you know, accomplished all this. And no, I think the feeling like growing up was like, I wasn't as smart as my peers. I wasn't as accomplished. I was kind of more the fun friend, you know, and the fact that I did like singing and performing, you know, I remember being at Princeton and I think it was like senior year and all like the big investment banks would come and like do their presentations. And I knew that I did not want to do that, but like all my friends were there and having like different crises about like, well, am I not smart? Am I not driven? You know, I want to choose a different path. So I feel like no matter what, like, I guess everyone probably has a little self-doubt if they're really being (laughs) truthful. And even for me, I loved performing, but I thought my parents would have a heart attack if I said, I'm graduating from Princeton and I want to be an actress. So instead, right after school, I went and got a job at a production company because I thought that sounded more serious and that they would be proud of me, right? We're always like, well, in a certain way, seeking our parents' love and approval or So off I went to work for Julia Roberts production company and was completely miserable. How did you get that job? Did they, it was a family connection or you just went in there and shot your shot? So 
during college, I was lucky enough to be able to do internships. And then I would have like, you know, crummy other little babysitting jobs and stuff like that. But I had a cousin that lived in Los Angeles, so I could live with her. And I had an unpaid internship at Universal Studios one Mm -hmm. summer. And then the next summer, I was in a screenwriting program at Tisch at NYU and had an internship at Miramax. Harvey was there at the time. And it was a really, everything they say was true. It was not a great environment. And I actually had a female boss that summer. And I remember going to her and saying, you know, this is happening, this. And she was like, that's just part of the business. If you want to be in this, you got to suck it up. So ignoring all my intuition and everything else, I just plowed ahead. And then for Julia, I had interviewed the boss I had at Universal, like one of the only great, great men in Hollywood, in my opinion, a man named Peter Kramer, who actually now is in charge of Universal. He had a friend, made a call. I did an interview, got a job for a woman named Deborah Schindler, who produced How Stella Got a Groove Back and Waiting to Exhale. Mm -hmm. And then she moved to work with Julia, and then I moved with her. I actually auditioned for the role that Ty, Tay Diggs got in House Stella Got Her Groove Back back Seriously? in the day. I was I was living in New York, working at a restaurant, and doing some acting and modeling on the side. Right. <laughs> and I had a oh couple of callbacks. Gosh. So funny. Wow. Isn't that so okay. interesting? Sorry. Just, I no, was just having this thought that, like, that was such a hard, wonderful time acting and all this stuff. And and then it's like, but, you know, I just did a little morning show on the news here. And I thought all the things and all these podcast interviews about this book, like all the things that I did back then prepare you for like Mm -hmm. this moment now and Mm -hmm. how thankful I am to be able to be saying my own words you know, and I don't know if you feel that way too, but it's like, wow, instead of just parroting somebody mm-hmm. else's words and a lot of the parts I was going forward, the words weren't that intelligent. <laughs> I distinctly remember living in New York and I had this really big gap campaign at the time. So I was all over Times Square, buses, everything. And I had people coming up to me all the time to strike up conversations People would like be asking, why are you in Barnes and Noble right now? Because I used to go to Barnes and Noble all the time, just like look at books and magazines, because that was one of my favorite pastimes. But being this quotes famous person now, I guess I wasn't allowed to be in just Barnes and Noble hanging out. And I was expected to be in the Hamptons or on some yacht somewhere. Meanwhile, I was still waiting tables. I didn't have any money. Wow. <laughs> but I knew then I didn't want to be famous for that. I said, I don't want to be the person memorizing someone else's life story. I want to be the person who some actor is auditioning to portray. I want to do something with my life that's going to be meaningful in that way. So that's where I made that switch. Okay. But anyway, enough about me going back to you. So there's another part of your childhood that I want to bring up. I don't want to resolve it right now in the conversation, but I just want to bring it up since you mentioned Harvey Weinstein, you were molested as a young child. Was that something that you, what do they call it when you black it out or you forget about it, but then it resurfaces later? Or was that something you carried with you throughout your young adult life? And then, you know, obviously being around that kind of situation, maybe that gets triggered a little bit. Yeah. So um, I was seven and it was actually someone that was working in our house and it happened in my bedroom. So it was just a violation on a lot of different fronts. 
I didn't black it out. You know, my parents had been talking to to me and my sister about I knew what had happened was wrong. So there was enough that they had instilled in me to even say like, I think you should get out of here or something like that. And then I remember telling my sister right after, like, I think I just got molested. And again, that's like such our bond that like, you know, I was seven, she was five and Mm -hmm. she's the first person I told. And I did wind up telling my parents. So I knew what had happened. And again, I love my parents and they are amazing people, but, and, and again, I don't know if it was the time, but I never went to therapy about it. We never, we did talk about it a little bit, but not really. And that Mm -hmm. is something that I carried a long, long time. And even like in some of the work I did in the healing from the mudslide, not looking for that that experience came up to be like cleared again. When you initially started therapy at Princeton, had you started talking about it and working on that and healing yourself from that? Yeah. That traumatic event. I had. And actually that event, there was like another one with a family friendish person a few years later when I was 13 and then another Mm -hmm. at 18. And something Mm -hmm. that I've wondered is if, you know, we can't go back and rewrite history, but it's like, if the seven-year-old one had been properly healed, would that have like stopped the dominoes from falling kind of thing at 13 and 18? Or I don't know, again, it's like each contraction, each trauma, if healed properly can be a portal to a more connected, awakened life, I think. But I just didn't have the resources or the tools as a child to seek that kind of healing. I'm just taking a stab in the dark. Was that your motivation for going to Pepperdine and studying clinical psychology because of the intellectual understanding versus the embodiment of healing? Yeah, I think that I knew, and it's amazing if you look around probably any clinical program, so many people there are there first to work on themselves, including me. (laughs) So I think that was definitely a big motivation. And also, I remember being so confused by working in Hollywood and like looking around at different personalities and and people that, you know, were successful and being so confused because behaviors I witnessed and stuff. I'm like, this is, someone's got to figure this out. This doesn't seem healthy. So, what were some of those behaviors? What were some of those traits you noticed in those people you were working with that just seemed off or weird or backwards? Yeah, I noticed like incredibly, and, and not Julia Roberts, by the way, just <laughs> it was not our but <laughs> you know, other women who were deemed successful that were really punishing to other women in the way they spoke or screamed through things, you know had people do demeaning tasks, things like that. So that was something that I found really, really troubling. How did you know it was time to leave that and go to the next thing, the degree, the master's degree? Why then and why Pepperdine? 
So I was living in New York at the time and always from a little girl I knew in DC, like I would read books about California and having orange trees in your backyard. And I just always knew that I wanted to live somewhere warm and California just seemed like, I don't know, expansion and openness. And, you know, I'd been able to be there that summer and my cousin had introduced me to yoga and I don't know, it just seemed so free. So, you know, my job in New York had just gotten pretty abusive, I think. So it was just like, I'm out. And I always knew I'd wanted to do the acting. And it was like, I don't want to work for Julia Roberts. I want to be Julia Roberts. So that didn't happen. But, you know, I met so many incredible people. I got to be creative. I got to push myself and learn how to connect in a different way. And then also through that, like kind of what we were saying before, like learn that what I really wanted was to like connect more to myself and understanding myself through the psychology degree and then eventually through other healing modalities. And then I wanted to like share that with others, which led me to writing and producing and curating retreats for women, which I've been doing for over a decade and having a blog back in the day. <laughs> if you had to kind of summarize the tenets of clinical psychology, the ones that would surprise most people, what would those two or three things be or takeaways from that experience? How do we get it wrong as just regular people thinking about psychology versus how it actually works? Well, I kind of want to say a couple things about that because at the moment, something that I'm working on, which sounds so lofty, but I think one thing that clinical psychology, I don't want to say is getting wrong, but is portraying in a limiting way is the understanding of trauma. There's, they call them ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. And I find that measure of trauma actually kind of traumatizing and limiting. So that's one thing that I want to help to start to maybe revamp the conversation around trauma and healing. For me, when I hear those ACEs read out, I find them triggering and they make me feel incredibly contracted and almost re-traumatized. And you're like, damn, I am, I'm screwed. I'm cursed, you know, instead of like, could we maybe start looking at events and traumas that have happened as growth indicators, or, you know, here's a place where this person was really contracted. And there's like that poem, like the holes are where the light gets in, you know, how can we, instead of making people feel cursed and damned for what they've been through, how can we shift that? So it's more of like a call to action for greater hope. For the listener, let's just be really clear. What is trauma compared with I had a bad day or something didn't go my way for five or 10 minutes? Like, what are we talking about when we say trauma? So trauma is defined as any time that we feel we will not survive, that our mortality is called into question. And it can be something that is directly happening to us, or it can also be, you know, like we may witness another, you know, it's like someone at the marathon bombings, you know, who may witness someone else's mortality being compromised, I guess, or being squashed up to the veil of life and death. 
that versus I had a bad day. You know, it's like you literally think you won't survive. And and that can come in the form of like, that's why like PTSD too. It's like you're you get stuck in that fight or flight mode. So the smallest thing can feel like a death threat almost, you know, or I remember after the mudslide, I'd hear like, you know, we were lucky enough to actually stay in it. There was like nowhere to live because so many homes had been destroyed and there was sewage and power lines. And, you know, so I was lucky enough to stay at a friend's beach house, but like the waves, literally I'd be like, there's going to be a tsunami. It's going to come get us, you know? So are like that tree is going to fall on us or, you know, everything like PTSD, basically. Exactly. Like stuck in that anything at any time is going to get you. So stuck in that fight or flight response, but yeah, trauma, anytime that we feel we will not survive. Have you always been curious about different healing modalities? I know you learned how to, we were talking earlier about how you learned how to meditate. You did Vedic meditation in 2012. I'm always curious, like what leads one to pursue that particular approach, especially because the person you learn with is an independent teacher, he's not affiliated with any organizations and you have to really be intentional about <laughs> finding out where to, where to go and, and learn with these Vedic meditation teachers. So to talk a little bit about your experience, I believe it was like in 2012 or 2011 or something like this. Yeah. Christian Bavakwa, love you. You changed my life. So yeah, I was definitely at that time becoming restless and knew that there was more or something else I was supposed to be doing. I just didn't know what it was. And I was living in Venice in California at the time. And I'm trying to even remember how we, Christian was also, he was teaching out of his house in Venice. So it must have been like a friend or someone must have said, like, come along. So my sister, the man that became my husband, now my ex husband, but we're still good friends. The three of us went to this like open house thing and he, gave his spiel. <laughs> it sounded great, but I too, like such a type A busy body, couldn't actually fathom how it would be possible that I would like sit still for 20 minutes uh, <laughs> as much less than like a room full of other people, like no way. But I'm like, okay, okay, great, great. And then actually Napper, my ex now, he was like, okay, let's sign up right now. And I was like, right now? Don't you want to like think about it? He's like, no, let's sign up. So we signed up and all three of us did it. And we were all three of us really committed and did it for a long time. And after I've had kids, I, you know, it's harder to find those 20 minutes. Well, I don't want to say that actually, because now I just, there, I kind of weave in different practices. Like I practice Qigong, which is kind of like a moving meditation. And then I, Joe Dispenza has come into my life. And so I've been doing some of his meditations too. And, but maybe like, maybe talking to you, I'm meant to go back to the Vedic. Was that your gateway to all the other stuff or had you been doing other things prior to meeting Christian? So let's see, I had started practicing yoga, but to be fair, it was more of like that work it out, sweat it out kind of yoga. Yeah, power power yoga. Yeah, I'm not sure we could say it was like a spiritual practice. 
Um, where were you going? Were you going to like uh, Maha or someplace like that? Oh, I totally went to Maha with who is that really handsome teacher? Tom Morley. Tom Morley. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all, all the girls, we used to go to Tom Morley and just pray that he would give you an adjustment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I went to Sarah Ivanhoe at Yoga Works, who was mm. more spiritual. And then I found like an Australian energy healer. That was the first time this was pre Vedic meditation. She put the ear seeds in and she worked with the energy more. And that was the first time that I was like, wait, I kind of knew there was more than just talking it out all the time. Like I can intellectually process and understand things that have happened to me, but I still feel it in my body and there's still triggers and there's still anxiety. I think my form of depression is anxiety. So Mm. that's how I, how it manifests for me is that feeling of anxiety. So Anita, that was her name. That was the first time that I was opened up to really thinking about energy and healing that way. So that I think then led me into being open to the Vedic meditation And then the Vedic meditation, yeah, I think just getting into that space for the first time ever was really, it was life-altering. What was your understanding of healed at the time? So we talked about trauma. Now let's talk about what you felt healed would look like. You have your yoga, you have your Vedic meditation, right? You have your Qigong, and you also have your clinical psychology master's degree. So did you imagine that you were going to get to a point where you didn't have that anxiety, where you didn't feel your sense of depression, where you were able to be healed from the molestation as a child? And what I'm talking about at that time, not now, but back then, did you did you think that that day was coming if you just kept doing what you're doing and stayed diligent and consistent? Yeah. And I think in some way, I probably thought I was healed. You know, I Mm -hmm. think that also is the naivete of like a young person, or maybe there's some people that are more in touch with themselves, but I don't know that I had fully connected to Mary yet, or if I was, you know, brave enough to really, I mean, I look back and there are things that you're like, why would I have I just did the things I was supposed to do. And maybe I delayed in a way, but that to me is how I know I, well, I wasn't fully healed and I wasn't fully in touch with myself because I would have made different decisions and maybe there's karma and maybe there's whatever. Do you have an example of that where one of those indicators where you weren't healed, what what, what behavior were you thinking about or referring to? I mean, I'm thinking, you know, and again, we're great friends, my ex, but you know, we dated for seven years before we got married. We broke up. We got back together. We were in couples counseling before we even got engaged. You know, I think the things I was really seeking, I'm not sure if I had looked back, you know, and it, like, you know, the night of our engagement, we were like out at a bar with like a lot of his friends kind of saying, you're like, hmm, not my vision, but we've been together seven years. We have all these things in common. We're good at these things together. So instead of really being like, really? 
okay, let's like really sit with this. But again, you know, and I have two amazing children and we have a great friendship and he's been a great teacher for me. But I think, again, it's like if we really take the time to, to become connected to ourselves, which is why meditation is so important. And I think having these kinds of conversations, giving other people permission to tap in and be authentic, even if it might be a little scary. Let's talk about Montecito and that I know you, you recounted this experience you know, a million times, but mm-hmm. if you wouldn't mind for my audience talking about it one more time, you bought this farmhouse, Montecito's in Ojai area? Montecito is just adjacent to Santa Barbara. So it's kind of like when you're driving up from LA, it's this huge, beautiful mountains right down to the beach cute little main street called Coast Village Road. And I remember the first time I went there, I was like, oh, I have like discovered this amazing town. <laughs> Cut to Oprah lives there. You know, like I didn't, I hadn't discovered anything. <laughs> so yeah, we'd been living in LA and we had our son and I have family that live up in Santa Barbara. So we'd come and visit and when he was about three years old, we made the move because, you know, if I didn't have to, I didn't want to raise my kids in LA. So, you know, we found this amazing farmhouse built in 1890 or something like that. And it was in the best public school district. Oprah was, you know, half a mile away. There was the beach, there was the mountains, like perfect. And again, when I look back, like there were so many that getting that house was so hard. There was like so many hoops we had to jump through and different things and this and that and the other. And I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And we got it and we had to do, we did like a little bit of renovations because it had not been whatever. And I do think the contractor, Morgan, who I love, he built this beam in the house. And I think that's what saved my life. But we only wound up sleeping in this house four nights. You didn't want the beam and he he decided to add it into the last minute or was, why is the, beam, the beam? The beam was significant because I think I'm like, I just want to make it look pretty. And he's like, no, I think you need to actually invest in like the structure or something. I'm like, okay, you're right. So thank, thank you, Morgan, for beam. But we slept there two nights in December, 2017. The Thomas fire had broken out, one of the largest wildfires in California, and it raged and raged and raged. And so we had an evacuation order and I was pregnant at the time with my daughter and had this little three-year-old. So we left and we came back in early January when the fire was not entirely contained, but it was safe. So we came back and on the fourth night, sleeping in this house, they had put out a warning for a debris flow. And I didn't really, I think growing up on the East Coast, I didn't know what that even meant. It didn't sound scary. There was, it was like a balmy-ish kind of night for January, no rain or anything. And we were not in an evacuation order. So we went to bed and for 
no reason that I'm aware of. I woke up at 4 a.m. And I know it was 4 a.m. because we had these kind of big French doors, all glass. And because we just moved in, we didn't have time to put up curtains or anything. And the sky was this like eerily beautiful orange. That's why I know it was four. Because I was like, is it dawn? Like looked at my clock. But no, there'd actually been a massive gas line explosion up the hill. So the sky was orange. And thank God, because that's how I could see this like tidal wave of mud, just like 30 feet high. We actually had this cool old Balinese daybed thing that was at the far end of the yard. And it was like 30 feet up in the air, just careening towards us. So I screamed to Napper, like go get ever because his bedroom was on the second floor. And he went, took off running. And by the time I was trying to follow him, the mud, glass, boulders, furniture was up to my waist. So I couldn't follow him. And I had to run the other way, which was back to my bathroom where there was a window. And it was like, I don't know if you ever saw that Naomi Watts tsunami movie, but Mm. it was like that. And it was like torrential downpour, rivers of mud. I watched like a neighbor's house get just whistled down away on the left side, on the right side. My two-story house had been ripped off, spun around backwards, facing, you know, down the hill. And the window facing me was my son's bedroom. And I thought that they were in it. And, you know, cars and boulders. And it was so loud. And I was screaming. And I thought, like, the house was going to give where I was. And was I going to jump out? And thank God I didn't jump out. So I wound up on my bathroom counter, the mud stopped literally like an inch below the counter. And I was pregnant. I was totally drenched, covered in mud, freezing, thinking that like literally everyone was gone. It was like the apocalypse. And then the light went out and it got dark because the gas went out. And I was just praying on that bathroom countertop. And I definitely had an experience of another presence with me some kind of divine presence that felt, I don't know, it was like a veil between this dimension and the next was kind of open to me intermittently. Were you injured at all physically? It's amazing. I literally, I had poison oak all over my lower half because there was mud, the poison oak in the mud. And I had kind of forgotten this. One of my best friends and my cousin remembered plucking out wood from my legs. I don't remember that, but no, I mean, it's, I literally felt like I was in my family who after about an hour, maybe two, I could hear them finally. So I knew they were alive, which was incredible. But then it was a gas, I could smell gas. And I mean, there was like raw sewage and electrical wires and the house kept heaving, but I feel like I was divinely protected. Like to have woken up, to have had the gas, to have been able to see, to have not had the curtains, to have gotten there in time, you know, one second or a couple seconds would have been probably a different outcome. A lot of my neighbors did not make it that night. And then I was rescued at around 9 a.m. by a civilian named Orion 
who my daughter actually has his name as her middle name, um, India Orion. And he's met her and he came to my book party and he's an amazing human angel. But he did he live me. in the area somewhere or how did he, where did he come from? Exactly. He literally appeared from nowhere. He lived in Montecito. He was a caretaker at a property there. And he had lost his dad in the La Conchita mudslide a few years before. So I don't know if that was why he felt compelled to go out, but I'm so thankful that he did. And I told him I was pregnant too. So he was like, oh God, we can't put you in this mud because it's so toxic and there's electrical wire. So he got, there had been like surfboards exploded from somewhere and he put them down on top of the mud and helped me walk on it. And then put me on the back of a firefighter who carried me out the rest of the way. And then we were like in those army convoy trucks, tanks, because you couldn't, the cute main street I was telling you about, it was like a destroyed apocalyptic scene, couldn't drive down it. So we had to go be taken out and, you know, the convoy tanks. Just going back to the bathroom for one moment, you were sitting on the counter. Is that what was, was happening? Huddled up on my counter. Yeah. And this is in January, so it's probably freezing outside. And you're just wearing pajamas. And mm-hmm. is there a window that's busted open? So you can yeah. kind of hear things through. You said you said the sound of it was like how did you describe the sound in the book again? So it's very loud. It was deafening. First hit. Yeah, really, really deafening. The sound of a mountain clearing. And boulders the size of tanks. I mean, that's why a lot of people didn't make it, right? Because these huge boulders just destroyed everything in their path. And before Orion shows up, how are you thinking you're going to get out of this? Are you thinking of escape pathways or you're in there for five hours? You got a lot of time to think, right? Yeah. Well, for a lot of that time, it was dark. So Mm -hmm. I was, you know, like, huh what am I going to do? Like is the entire world destroyed? Is everybody that I love like gone or are they not gone? Like, should we move to like the Bahamas? Oh, but there's hurricanes. Should we like where like, huh? Like Italy seems safe, (laughs) you know, like in your head, but am I going to make it? And we're not going to, so there was a window. So I would like swing myself over the mud to like hunch in the, on the windowsill and scream for help and kind of check out the surroundings. But it was literally like, there wasn't even, there was nothing living that I could see. Like there's no insect, no bird, no, I was looking at a neighbor's house of a neighbor who didn't make it another, like everything was just exploded and destroyed. No signs of life. There was a firefighter at one point in the dark, like I saw his little flashlight beam. And I screamed to him and he was like, we'll be back in the morning. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, get in here. <laughs> like, but at least I was like, at least somebody knows I'm here. But it was traumatic, right? It was traumatic. Now let's talk about the aftermath a little bit. You said a year and a half later, you had your first panic attack. 
And what I love about your book, Trusting the Dawn, is at the very end of the book, you give this summary of things that people can sort of incorporate in real time, such as if you experience some real trauma like that, not to refer to yourself as a survivor and to eliminate the word try from your vocabulary and to be sort of a coach and to use the third person when you're talking about yourself. So did you already know all of that or did you have to figure that out for yourself over those next couple of years? I had some, you know, obviously I had my psychology degree and I've been, you know, working with people through the retreats and different healers to heal other, you know, the childhood stuff and, and other traumas. But no, that level of trauma and contraction and losing, I mean, we lost all our stuff, but I didn't lose. But it was that too. It was like, you know, I was five months pregnant and we moved nine times in four months, five months. We didn't have very much stuff to move, obviously, because we lost all of it. But just that feeling of not being able to know where we were going to be and to keep my son safe. And he was seeing a therapist right away. But just that unsettled feeling, you know, I like swan dove off into a whole new level of healing, I would say after that and interviewed all kinds of different people and tried everything that came up. And the panic attack, yeah, I thought this was really interesting. I kind of pieced that together. I interviewed a former doctor who talks about progesterone as a treatment, wild yams, as like, you know, bioidentical hormones as a way to like calm the adrenaline response. And he recommends it for everything. I did find it helpful for settling myself down. But I noticed like in interviewing him and doing some more research around progesterone and that I thought it was interesting. It was actually a year after that I had my first panic attack, but or no, maybe right. <laughs> it's a year and a half because it was like I had just finished breastfeeding, which was through breastfeeding, you get all kinds of different hormones and good hormones. And, and so it was after that, that I think my hormones were kind of shuffling around and the panic attack, the first one happened. So it's just, it's interesting. You can understand something again, but then when you're living it, it's maybe harder to see. I'm thinking about one, one woman that I interviewed that I love so much, Dr. Edith Eager. I don't know if you've come across her, you know her. Well, I, um, no, in your book, you you quoted her. Oh. She's the Holocaust survivor. Yeah, exactly. So she's like 98 Holocaust <clears throat> survivor, and she's had a thriving psychology practice for decades in San Diego. And she said, victimization is a part of life. We'll all be victimized in one way or another. Victimhood is the choice. She said, you move through the valley of the shadow of death. You don't set up camp there, like keep going. So that to me was, I knew I didn't want to stay there. And I empathize that I, that it can feel as if like, I don't know how to get out of here, this place that I'm in. So that's kind of why I wrote the book too. So people would have 
I don't want to call it a manual, but you know, there's a lot of different ways in to begin your healing or to continue it. So you don't have to stay stuck. 23 people died from that mudslide. There were 120 something people who got injured. Why do you suppose you were the one that chose to write a book about it? Or are there other books out there? I don't know. Are there other books and movies about this mudslide? Or are you sort of like the voice of mudslide experience? Uh, I know that Rob Lowe, <laughs> me and Rob Lowe, I think we need a documentary about it. I have not watched it just because I was there. I saw it. I know what happened. <laughs> you don't need um, to watch the documentary. <laughs> I don't need to watch it. I lived it. But actually, there was one of the healing practices i explored shamanism and uh you know durek you know durek i know durek so durek and i durek was actually the second shaman that i talked to and i love him and i think his book is really interesting for people interested in shamanism i think it's called what's it called spirit hacking spirit hacking but the first shaman that I kind of stumbled into was in the Arizona desert, this gentleman named Tim Frank. And we're in this like super hot, sweaty yurt. And, you know, I'm sobbing as I'm talking. And, and then we, you know, he lays me down on this massage table, but with petite things. And he's swatting me with like hawk wings and, you know, rattles and spitting on me and doing the whole thing. And I was still super stuck in that fear response. So like, everything's going to kill me. He's like, do you think that you survived that to be taken out now? Like, no, like screaming in my ears, like you survive so that you can share and help other people in their time of darkness, like kind of like get out of your own way, <laughs> mayor. So, you know, I, that was the first time I think that it started to align, like, okay, like get on with it kind of thing. And, you know, allow yourself to move through that valley of the shadow of death. And, and also realizing too, actually, it was on a flight on my way home from a college reunion where I'd been telling and retelling and retelling the story that, the story and what had happened to me was so much more than the PTSD, but that there was all these amazing things that had happened and were happening that would never have happened without that intense contraction and then the healing that followed. So that was kind of the first kernel for the book and for this like burning mission I have to want to help uplift other people. I feel like that's a blind spot for a lot of people, right? You go through this horrific traumatic event. It's so easy to just be in the victimhood of it all and to see yourself as a victim as opposed to a survivor. How did you get out of that? Was it through the work with the shaman and, you know, the other healers or Edith? Like who pointed it out to you or did you kind of have this epiphany on your own through a meditation or something like this? But this is actually a triumphant story that's going to inspire people one day. I think it was, you know, a culmination and like a, a slow build. You know, it was a EMDR. I did an EMDR session and that kind of helped settle mm. one part and helped quiet the nightmare so I could actually sleep. I think I had to hear it and like 
feel it in my body and my soul from a lot of different angles. I think that's actually why too, I share so many different modalities because I think it, for me, it took a lot of different ways in and time to have it resonate. And I also want to say to people too, like, I think there's this perception that like healing goes like this in this upward, we just keep going better and better and better and better. But I think in reality, it's a bit more like this, you know, the wave, Mm -hmm. like, and not to feel frustrated when we dip down. And now what I work to do is, I didn't say try, right? So work to do is, (laughs) okay, I'm being shown that there's something else. There's an opportunity here. (laughs) There's another opportunity coming for me to explore further, whatever the dip is. So that's what I, I work to do. I have a friend who, who says that the worst thing that happened to you is going to become the opening chapter of your book, your memoir, your biography. And you literally start with that worst <laughs> thing that's happened to you. Like when you get her book, Trusting the Dawn, you start by telling the story of the mudslide. That's literally where the story begins. Mm-hmm. And then everything else, all of the takeaways come after that, which I think is, again, it's, it's just a very powerful reminder for anyone who's going through something right now and they think this is the end of the world. And it's actually, no, this is what I got from your messages. This is actually just the beginning. This is where the story actually starts the story of your personal transformation, your evolution and your redemption. And and one takeaway that I thought was very profound, because it's something that I've actually been writing about for my upcoming book on minimalism. You said your true home is your body. So you're someone who literally had everything that was dear to you in a material sense stripped away. The sentimental items, I mean, all the pictures and all the passports with the little stamps and whatever collectibles you had, all that was gone. And so talk a little bit about how that led you to realize that your body was your true home. And and what do you do about that once you realize that's where your true home is? Yeah. So I think in losing the actual home. And again, I, you know, shared how much had gone into getting it and then, you know, Mm -hmm. making it a certain way. And so losing the physical home and then all this stuff. And, and I would also like to say, (laughs) I would like to keep my house and I've learned that lesson. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but that being said, like, what do we, have and yeah, the body and like how we feel in our body and relationships too. But the body is the true home. So if we're carrying around, which we are, like I love and Joe Dispenza talks about, and I share it in the book, like how our organs and and our tissues, our bodies store memories. There's one story that he shares that I share about a little girl that got a heart transplant and she never met her donor and didn't know anything about her. And she started having all these dreams and nightmares and come to find out that her heart donor had been murdered. And this little girl who got the heart literally like they, she knew where the body was. She knew who did it. And they like found the murderer and put him away. But like how, 
if we're not like animals in the wild, a deer that is chased by a predator, like when it gets away, it shakes, it like releases the cortisol and the adrenaline from the body. And we don't do that as human beings. So it builds up in our body. So shaking is a wonderful shaking therapy, dance, like just moving your body. Important too to note, it's not like you're getting it out. Like I think the goal of healing is integrating even our traumatic events. Like it's not an other than, it's just a part of the story. It's not the story, just a part of the story. So same thing, like, you know, it's releasing the adrenaline, but it's not like trying to get it out kind of thing. The psoas is an important place in Chinese medicine. I think they call it the pathway of the soul or something like that. So releasing the psoas muscle that shaking therapy can do. Even massage can be helpful. Eating easily digested foods right after a trauma. Like if you think about it, your body is just like kind of in survival mode. So making it easier for the body. Yeah. And loving our bodies too. I think that's something and appreciating them. I don't, I feel like, especially as women and women getting older, we're so hard on ourselves. And it's like, I don't know, be thankful for this body. And like, it got you through and it's, you know, without the body, we can experience certain pleasures and how delicious food is and sensual pleasures. And so love your body. Talk about the concept of initiation as it relates to rewriting your story. I was told through the shaman, through like this Jungian psychologist, through just, you know, different people along the way, how I'd been initiated. And that was my question. I'm like, initiated to what? (laughs) And in shamanism, different kinds of shamanism believe that a near-death experience. It's a kind of like you have to, there's like a death of the old self in order to move into this next realm of like a more spiritual evolved being. And I think, you know, even if we think about in psychology too, there's like almost like a death of the ego to actually get to the true self. So I think most of us going about our everyday lives, we're going about, we're doing our thing, We're thinking about what to have for lunch, what we're going to do, pick up our kids, blah, blah, blah. And until we're, most of us are forced through an often like it's something traumatic, something that brings us to our knees and really rips back the ego. And we don't really look at the bigger picture or connect with ourselves. So I think for me, that's initiation and initiation to like yourself, your most like dynamic self and like the world and the world beyond here, but out there and how connected we all are. I think the idea of rewriting your story is one of the fastest ways to sort of empower yourself using the trauma or whatever life experience that you even maybe, maybe even be going through right now. Like I know sometimes people may be working a job that they feel it's toxic. And, you know, I get people asking me these questions all the time. What do I do about, how do I follow my heart in a toxic job or whatever? Mm -hmm. And I say, you start to reframe your work, not as something you have to do, but something you get to do in order to subsidize or fund the thing that you're really passionate about and start taking baby steps in that direction. And that will 
change the way you view your job, not as something that's plaguing your life, but something that's actually funding the things that you really, really find inspiring. And you've been doing these retreats for a long time, these women's retreats, the Wild Precious Life retreats, which you know gives you an or has given you an outlet to help a lot of people. And I'm curious how your experience of the mudslide shifted the way you approach either how you facilitate those retreats or your intention going into them or what ways has it impacted your role as a facilitator and a leader of helping other people? I think it has allowed me to connect on such a deeper level with people because unless you've been through and come out the other side, I think it's hard to truly empathize with another, you know, and I interviewed all different kinds of trauma survivors in the book. And although there are different traumas, there's this, I think this connection of like, oh, you have experienced, I don't know, there's like an ability to connect that I don't know that I had before. And, you know, because of all of the healing work that I have undergone as a result of the trauma, I think it broadened my perspective and gave me new tools to help other people. And and that actually is something else that I've worked with groups for a long time. And now just in, I've been kind of working more one-on-one with people, like people are coming, I find when we're so vulnerable and open about what we've been through, it gives people permission to be vulnerable as well. So that's something kind of new that I've started working with people and like kind of strategy sessions on on the best path forward. Yeah, I think there's just like kind of a more of a heart. I mean, I always, you know, led with my heart, but I think there's more of a heart connection and and seeing other people kind of like light up or like have the breakdown to get to the breakthrough is like the best thing ever. When you see that light turn back on, you know. So the title of your book, Trusting the Dawn, it comes from a famous quote. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you mean by trusting the dawn? Yeah. So do you know Florence Scovel Shin? Of course. Yeah. Okay. It's so amazing how many people like in, even in our world are like, who? I, I used to her. give, I used to, uh, back in the day when you remember Bodhi Tree Bookstore? Yes. I love that. Melrose. Uh-huh. I, I used to go there all the time and buy like handfuls of the game of life. And give them out as gifts to people because it's such an easy read. And it's just, it just was one of the first, quote, spiritual books that I digested and just really got a lot out of. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of hers. Wait, I feel like we're like siblings. <laughs> We've def- right? we definitely crossed paths at some point. <laughs> I sure. know. Yeah. So I love Florence. She was, you know, a woman very ahead of her time, as you know, like writing about a lot of the things that Deepak and Joe Dispenza and all these people are talking about now, she was saying at the turn of the century as a woman in New York. And so she, I actually look at her book, my sister and I both do every morning, I'll like skip through and just find a little passage and kind of start the day off right. But in her book, she talks about the dawn and trusting the dawn, it always comes. So when we're in that dark moment and for me, it had a double meaning. It's like when we're in the darkness, 
I was literally in the dark waiting for the dawn to come on my bathroom counter just so I could assess my surroundings. And also when we're in the darkness following a trauma and PTSD, knowing that like it will get light again, it will. So it's like a double, a double meaning. To go a little deeper too, I mean, if that gas fire hadn't happened and caused that glow, you wouldn't have seen the mudslide. And maybe you would have been in bed and maybe it would have been a very different outcome if that was the case. So that light in and of itself, even though it wasn't the sunlight, that light still gave you some information that helped you to survive. Yeah, that light probably saved our lives. So it sounds like luck and you have an interesting perspective on the concept of luck that you talked about in the book. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that? Yes. When people, you know, oh, you're so lucky, you know, for whatever reason, for the what you have or where you grew up or that you lived. (laughs) I mean, that I live. Yes, I think I. And I said earlier, I feel like there was like some divine presence with me, which maybe we can say that's lucky or maybe I don't know. But luck, I think luck is being disciplined in how we show up as humans and the daily practices, which I know for like a, you know, a single mom working two jobs that I get it like daily practices, like I don't have time to meditate and journal and do all the things. I also think no matter the circumstance, we can find our spiritual practice and connecting to ourself. And even how you just said, reframing a toxic work environment as like, okay, what is this person or this environment like teaching me, showing me like, okay, I don't want to be like that. Or if I treat them with kindness, then does it shift or, you know, kind of using it as more of like a lab. (laughs) And then I realized too, that in my daily practice, when I was like, God, it'd be so much easier to be more spiritual and connected if, you know, I didn't have two kids and didn't have to be cooking and cleaning up and working. And then I realized that like, that is the spiritual practice is when we're in those moments when someone's screaming at you and something is whatever that like, that's the practice. So luck, I think is what comes from the inside out, going back to our home, uh, you know, our bodies and our souls and, and how we're rating it out and breath is free. We can, and we breathe all day long. So like, if we need to like settle and, and what we think about and how we are attracts more of that. So it's, you know, that's physics. That's not like woo woo stuff. That's vibrational frequency. So I think if we think about luck like that, like you're attracting what you're vibrating to, does that sound too woo-woo? <laughs> it feels like you, I didn't know you before, obviously, <laughs> but from what I've read and from, from speaking with you, it feels like you're now living a very much unapologetic life. And your book is really accessible because you're not an expert, because you're not positioning yourself as necessarily a healer or anything like that. You're just, you're a reporter. You're mm-hmm. someone who's gone through something that would be anyone's worst nightmare. And you had already been engaged in a bunch of techniques and healing modalities, and you started doing other ones. And so a good portion of the book is just listing each healing technique 
and talking about what your personal experience was and then talking about how it could be relevant for someone else. And you actually recommend like if you're experiencing this kind of trauma, then you should explore this technique, but it's not pushy at all, which I, which I really loved. And, you know, when I write my books, when I wrote my meditation book, I really wrote it because I didn't see any other books like that out there. And, And I don't know what the trauma book category is like, but did you have the same experience where maybe you were looking for answers and you didn't see the answers in a real world, relatable, accessible way? And that's one of the reasons why you wrote the book the way you did. Yeah, exactly. I found, you know, the books and there's some great books on trauma written by experts that, yeah, I found actually kind of traumatizing to read. (laughs) (laughs) I I did. Like they were very traumatized after reading the trauma book. That's funny. (laughs) Truly like, you know, pretty triggering. Yeah. And I, I did really want to take the approach of, you know, I'm there with you. I've been there with you and these other people have also been where you are now. And I think that's one of my main things. I just don't want people to feel alone and I don't want them to feel damned and I don't want them to feel, I want them to feel hope and that they're more resilient for what they've been through if healed and that their world is like, as you said, this is the beginning of your, you know, awakened, connected, dynamic story, not the end, not the story. I love, you know, we've been talking about the rewriting the story. I have a whole exercise about that in the book too, about rewriting it. And, and you're just embarking on this next chapter. So yeah, no, I want to, yeah, I'm with you. (laughs) I'm with them. (laughs) So having grown up comfortably with money and all that, and having all the experiences you've had and, and then going through this event, How is Mary Firestone thinking about success these days? The first thing I write about, because I do write in my journal almost every day, is I'm so thankful for the love that I have in my life. And, you know, following the divorce, I actually met somebody who is an incredible man who loves me and lights me up and supports me and we share similar interests. And so having that kind of partnership and love is such a gift, my children. So that is success, you know, and even like, you know, my nine-year-old was like, I want to sleep in your bed tonight, last night. He never really does that. And I was like, okay, but that feels like success in a way, you know, that we're, that he's comfortable and that we have that kind of bond. And I don't know, but that's rare that he does that. So love and then being in nature as much as possible and appreciating beauty. And like, I have these amazing roses that have been here for God knows how long, maybe a hundred years, but just like appreciating them and bringing them inside and that they're not all dead. That's success for me. (laughs) Seeing the light turn on in somebody else again, that is a huge success in my work space. And then I think money, money is success. And if it can allow greater freedom to travel places, see how other people live, have more time to do the things that light me up and I love to do and be with the people that I want to be with. 
Beautiful. Well, I just want to acknowledge you, Mary, for being vulnerable enough to put your story out there. Because, you know, it's not easy talking about things like molestation or being pregnant and trapped in a mudslide. And to me, that's one of the indicators that healing is very much in progress, that you can now talk about it from a place of empowerment, from a place of seeing yourself as a survivor of this thing, and also seeing the thing as a gateway to something greater and an outlet to help other people. So thank you so much for doing that. It's so necessary that I think as many people as possible take their mess and turn it into their message or take their biggest obstacle and turning into their path or their purpose. And that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast was to invite people like you on to share your story. And these are just you know, we're all just regular people. We're not, you know, superheroes in a sense that you're running around with a cape and a lasso. You're just, you know, your cape is your is your ability to reframe your experience. And your lasso is your ability to write a book proposal and to put yourself out there in that way to potentially be rejected, but then maybe to go and publish it yourself or whatever you have to do to share your story. And if the, if the story is truthful, if it's authentic, if it has some sense of hope in it, people will resonate with it. And so that's what I got from your book and your story. And I just, I'm grateful that we got a chance to connect. I'm sure we'll, we'll cross paths at some point in the near future. And I'll be able to give you a big warm hug when we do it. One of those, we call a California hug where you hug really tightly and you take a deep breath. (laughs) 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 Nobody does those hugs like they do in California. So (laughs) thank you. Thank you again for coming on to the show. Thank you so much, Light. Thank you for listening to my interview with Mary Firestone. Mary's book, Trusting the Dawn, is available everywhere books are sold. And also make sure to follow Mary on social media at maryfirestone13. And of course, we'll put links to everything else that Mary and I discussed in the show notes on my website, which is lightwatkins.com slash show. And if this is your first time listening to The Light Watkins Show, we've got an incredible archive of interviews with many other luminaries who share how they found their path and their purpose such as internet poet sensation Young Pueblo, film director Ava DuVernay, Ed Milet, the motivational speaker, and many, many more. You can even search the interviews by subject matter in case you only want to hear episodes about people who've taken leaps of faith or who've overcome financial struggles or who've navigated health challenges. You can get a list of all of those episodes at lightwatkins.com slash show. You can also watch these interviews on my YouTube channel. If you want to put a face to a story, just search Light Watkins podcast on YouTube and you'll see an entire playlist of the video episode. And if you didn't already know, I post the raw, unedited version of every podcast in my Happiness Insiders online community. If you're the type who likes to hear all the mistakes and the false starts and the chit chat in the beginning and the end of the episodes, you can listen to those by joining my online community at thehappinessinsiders.com. And not only are you going to have access to those unedited versions of the podcasts, but you'll also have access to my 108-day meditation challenge, along with other challenges and masterclasses for becoming the best version of you. And finally, to help me bring you the best possible guests, it would go a long way if you could take 10 seconds to rate this podcast. All you do is you look at your device, click on the name of the podcast, scroll down past the previous episodes. You'll see a space with five blank stars. Just tap the star all the way on the right. If you like 
this show and you want to leave a five-star rating. And if you want to go the extra mile and leave a review with maybe one episode that you recommend a new listener should consider starting with as an introduction to the podcast, that would be very helpful as well. Thank you for that. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you taking that leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.